Good afternoon. Thank you again for the opportunity that we have to learn together from yourself. And we thank you, as David himself will be doing. We thank you for this gift that you've given to us, authored by your Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And we'd ask, Father, that he may indeed um, be pleased to use the gifts that you've given to David to uh, help us understand, to learn, to grow, and to benefit in a way that will be transformative in our lives and in our living and for the glory of your own great name. May that be the fruit of this evening. And would you help David? Thank you for the, the help you've given him in preparation. Uh, may he know refreshment uh, as he ministers. May he be conscious of your spirit uh, speaking through him. And may we together be glad to uh, affirm the glory of your risen son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is life and hope and all things. Bless him then, and do us good for Jesus' sake. Amen. And over to you, David. Okay, thank you very much. Um, unless I hear different from you, Jerry or Rosie, I'll assume you can hear me okay and that everything's all right. Um, so uh, I've only got myself on the screen at the minute, so I can't see anybody else, but um, welcome back, everybody. You're very brave coming back um, after all this time away and you're very brave to come back for tonight's session if you remember that tonight's session is on death is the title so what an exciting uh, amazing thing for you to come back to Jerry's put the first uh, if you just go back Jerry just to the one you just had there up um, <clears throat> the previous slide um, this is the one we started with right at the beginning and I said to you it's kind of depressing picture isn't it um, beautiful scenery and background and this dilapidated building. We've changed the image for the first few sessions, but I've put it back deliberately to this this evening. Um, I'll explain in just a minute why that image is there, or we'll read a part from a, a passage from Ecclesiastes. I think it will be clear why that's there. What we're looking at is the tree of life, wisdom literature, and learning to live from the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Job. And um, we've spent all our time so far on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If you do the next slide, uh, Jerry, the one you just were on again, we've looked at wisdom so far, perspective, time, and like I said, we come tonight to death. And tonight and next week, the 16th of November, two things to say about them, death and life go together. So it's very hard to do tonight without referring to next week. It'll be hard to do next week without referring uh, back to this week. If you find tonight unbearably bleak and awful, and bits of it are, I think, um, then you please remember that next week is the exact opposite um, life we come to next week. Um, these are also our last two in Ecclesiastes. So number four, death, and five, life, finishes Ecclesiastes. Then we're going to look at Proverbs chapters five to seven and the Book of Song of Songs for week six. We're going to do Desire from Proverbs and Song of Songs and then our final session, we're going to come to the book of Job uh, on, on mystery. Okay, so that's where, we're, that's where we are at the minute. And that's where, uh, where we're going this evening. If you put up um, <clears throat> the next slide, thanks. This is a quote from Brian Brock. Some of you will know Brian. He's a professor of Christian ethics here at Aberdeen, Aberdeen University, um, an American chap. And here's what Brian says in one of 
uh, one of his books, he says, we need to be alienated from what we think we know in order to genuinely grow. And I think you've, we've, we've probably all got some idea of that as a general truth, haven't we? That um, when you encounter something that is startlingly new and unsettling and that a new experience or a new idea or a new person that actually alienates you from everything that you held uh, dear and everything that was quite comfortable in those moments you have the opportunity to genuinely grow um, you can leave behind old patterns of thinking and develop something new and that's really what I want what I want to do with death tonight um, <clears throat> I think that what we think we know is that death is a curse death is evil death is awful death is bitter and none of, none of what I'm going to say tonight changes any of that. And Ecclesiastes holds that view about death as well. Make, make no mistake about it. Ecclesiastes is very clear-eyed about how awful death is. Okay, so we don't need to convince the teacher of Ecclesiastes that death is awful. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, if that is all we believe about death and all we know about death that it is a curse that it is awful that it is bitter that it is terrible ecclesiastes is here to alienate us from what we know in order to help us genuinely grow and the way that it's going to do that is by saying that death is not just all those awful things death actually has positive potential built into it and that that's a strange thing isn't it it's an alienating thing um, the, the subtitle for my book on Ecclesiastes, the, the main title is Destiny. The subtitle is Learning to Live by Preparing to Die. In other words, death can teach you how to live. And that, that's the message of Ecclesiastes when it looks at death. That's why death and life go together. Um, let, let me just give you an example of this. If you go to the next slide again, Jerry, please. Uh, this is a man called Alex Zanardi. Um, Alex Zanardi, I can't remember whether I mentioned him before or not, apologies if I did in the first few weeks, I can't remember. Alex Zanardi won, won a gold medal in the hand cycling event at the 2016 Paralympics in Rio de Janeiro. Some of you may have heard about him. Um, gold medal at the Paralympics 15 years prior to that. As a Formula One race car driver, he lost both of his legs in a high-speed crash in Germany. And when he got his gold medal in Rio, okay, 15 years after that terrible accident, as Zanardi said this, he said, I feel like my life is a never ending privilege. Even my accident, what happened to me, became the greatest opportunity of my life. Now, I think that is a, that, that, that's a really remarkable thing to say, isn't it? That there's Brian Brock's statement, alienated from what we think we know in order to genuinely grow. Zanardi in that terrible crash is alienated from everything that he held dear. And he, he came to think that he had placed in front of him the greatest opportunity of his life. There's another quote uh, on the screen. I want to do something with this life of mine. I want to take my life as a great opportunity that I can't waste. Again, this was after his accident. This is him thinking about how to live. The, the whole thing about death in Ecclesiastes is that some of life's greatest gifts are found in the strangest of places. That's the message of this book, that the strangest of places 
death, the place where we think to only find tragedy, actually can be an amazing gift. Now, what, what, I, what, I, what I mean by that, here, here's the key thing for this evening. Okay, here, here's, the, <clears throat> here's the key way to think about this, that, l like I said, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is not sugarcoating death. He's not going to pretend death is um, better than it is. No, for the teacher of Ecclesiastes, death still stalks the world as a curse. But here, here, here's what he does. The teacher in Ecclesiastes explores the distinction between death in general and my own death in particular. Okay. Death in general is awful. The death of a loved one, the death of a child, the death of uh, innocent people, the death of people through COVID, the, 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 the death that we see out there in the world is an evil that stalks the world. But there is a distinction between thinking about that kind of death and me thinking about my own death. If I lump my own death into that whole big mass of everybody else's death and treat it all the same, Ecclesiastes says you're missing the chance to think clearly about the difference your own death can make to your own life. Okay, so Ecclesiastes is going to say that if I think about me and my death, learning that my death is coming and my death is certain, if I then think about that in advance before it gets to me, there are immense benefits that can, that can flow. So I hope that's clear that the distinction between thinking about death in general, there is nothing tonight that means we should leave, turn off your computer this evening and think, oh, you know, you, you put the 10 o'clock news on after this, I guess many of us, and you see the latest death figures in the pandemic. None of tonight changes how awful that is. But what I hope it sh should begin to change is, how do I think about me appearing as one of those statistics uh, on the TV screen? When it's my turn to be there, how, how do I think I should be living if that's where I might end up as, as I might, as we might? Okay, so thinking about our own death is the key thing here. Just before we dive into it, <clears throat> can you put up the next slide as well, Jerry? I just want to recommend something to you. Um, I, I shared some of this with Yvonne uh, Thompson just uh, a while ago after some of this earlier material in Ecclesiastes. Um, I was emailing back and forth with Yvonne and told her about this chap, Todd Billings, who's a friend of mine in America. Some of you will know of him. He's a, um, a really good theologian, has written some excellent, um, started off life writing excellent stuff on John Calvin. And I think was kind of set up to be a, a classical uh, church history or systematic theologian for life and then uh, sadly several years ago was diagnosed with terminal cancer and although some of his academic interests have continued uh, what he's what he's done is really harnessed his ability as a Christian thinker to think very richly about death and what it means to be a living person who is dying and heading towards dying much sooner than he ever thought that he would and I, I just simply want to recommend a couple of his things uh, up here. That's his name, J. Todd Billings. And if you just put that into Google and look for his website, he has a website that this is a screenshot from his website. So he's, there's, you can read about him, books that he's done. This is his most recent book, uh, The End of the Christian Life. Uh, that's very, very, very recently just come out. Um, uh, he, here's some of what he, he, his chapters. Welcome to Sheol, a guided tour of life in the pit. 
two views of mortality is death an enemy or a friend mortals in, den in denial living as dying creatures he then looks at the strange new world of mo modern medicine how do we hope for the end as mortal people it's it's not an abstract difficult book bits of it are challenging i think but it, it's an incredibly rich um, moving helpful reflection on why mortality doesn't have to be morbid and the difference that thinking about death clearly can make. You'll see along the top here that he has a podcast. If you just flick to the next slide again, um, <clears throat> Todd interviewed five or six different people uh, quite recently. You'll see he interviewed uh, some pastors, therapists. He, he interviewed an undertaker, um, a really, really interesting, amusing guy called Thomas Lynch, who's an undertaker in America. Uh, he's interviewed some Old Testament uh, scholars, and I'm one of the pastors that he interviewed uh, because we know each other a little bit. He did a podcast with me uh, speaking about my book on Ecclesiastes and his book, The End of the Christian Life. Um, and we just kind of explored, it's about a 45-minute conversation, explored some of these um, issues together. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit about him, his, his life, and hearing me uh, talk and interact with him, if you go to the website, click on podcast. Some of the other ones are fascinating as well, really fantastic, worthwhile listening to. So I, I just recommend that, that website and Todd's work, if tonight is kind of, you know, like Ecclesiastes, leaves you scratching your head and thinking, what the heck is this all about? This is all weird. Um, uh, check out some of his work. I think you'll find it, um, find it really helpful. Right. Uh, let's, let me show you where we're going to go tonight. Um, here's our topic, death, and we're going to look at death's three strange faces, okay? Excuse me, drinking my cup of tea. You can hear me slurping probably. Um, three, three, three things I want to show you about death from Ecclesiastes. We may not get to number three. If we do get to number three, I will probably be quite brief on it because number three is where this topic really bleeds into next week about life. Uh, so it's really one and two. Uh, one and two are the main ones that I want to do tonight. I want to try and convince you that from Ecclesiastes, death is a surgeon and death is a preacher as well. Um, <clears throat> here, here's, here's what I mean about the first one then. Death is a surgeon, okay? You, we know, don't we, that what a surgeon does in the best of times is that a surgeon operates on human bodies. I haven't really got any other... I've got some quotes, by the way, just through the rest of this evening, some more slides to show you, but I don't have any other headings at any point as we go through this. These are the only, the only, the only headings um, that we're going to come to. So think about a surgeon in general life. Surgeon operates on human bodies, don't they? And surgeons, the key part of what a surgeon does is to wound and to cut and sometimes to break, to wound and to cut and to break in order to heal. Okay, it's part of a surgeon's job is that you're not going to be much good as a surgeon if you never initially make the body worse by cutting into it and, and, and getting to where you need to get. I think, and there's no verse that says in Ecclesiastes, death is a surgeon, but I think when you stand back and look at it, I think the writer says, the writer believes that death is a cardiologist, a really skillful heart surgeon. In other words, that the teacher of Ecclesiastes knows how we work as human beings. Okay, and if you go to the very first chapter of Ecclesiastes, this is the passage that we looked at. I think we looked at this with time. If you go to the very first chapter of it, 
uh, and the opening verses, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity or meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I think the teacher knows that that desire for gain is the motivating desire of every human being, every living human being. We want to achieve something, don't we? And we want something solid and substantial in our hands that we can hold on to. We want to be able to put something really meaningful and worthwhile into our pockets to say, I mattered and being here mattered and I've done something with my life. I've, I've achieved something. I'm going to be remembered for something. Not all of that is, is, is bad, of course. There's good bits of that. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes knows that we take that desire for gain and we, we inflate ourselves with it. We want more from life than actually God ever intended us to have. And what the teacher sees is that God has placed death in the world as a judicial sentence on our desire to be more than merely creatures. Our desire to have more than we should have, more than we deserve to have. <clears throat> so the greatest obstacle to my ambition to be someone that the world will remember forever, what is the greatest obstacle to it? It's death. It's that one day I will be gone, that the, the project of David Gibson that I spend my life building and constructing one day will crumble to dust and two, three generations time, no one will even know I'm here. W what the teacher is saying is that God uses death to bring us back down to size again. He, he uses death to operate on all our hearts, anxieties and our fears, to operate on our restless striving and straining and toiling for gain, for gain, our desire for greatness and for a, for a forever after legacy. That kind of desire that fuels so much of what we do, God, God has taken all of that ambition and actually placed it off limits for us as fallen creatures and said that, says that death is the tool I'm going to use to stop you striving for all those kind of things. So you'll see then the, 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 the quote, next slide, uh, Jerry, that we've had already. Go back, go back to the beginning of the beginning of the world in the Garden of Eden. Remember this quote from Derek Kidner: "This was the nerve the serpent had touched in Eden, to make even paradise appear an insult." He, here is our first experience of life in the world in our in our parents, Adam and Eve, given the most stunning garden to enjoy. And what what are they effectively saying? God says, "You can have." everything you want in here apart from one tree don't touch that one tree and in reaching for the one thing god has told them not to take adam and eve are saying to god is this it lord is this is this all you're giving us this this isn't enough we want we want more than you've given us mankind wants gain from all its toil here's another quote this time from jacques Elot. <clears throat> French philosopher, theologian who said this, you are a creature. Our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in our garden. Um, we, we weren't meant to stay in the garden. We were meant to cultivate the whole earth to be like the garden. Our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in our garden. All the evils, 
and I choose my words carefully, all the evils of the world stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. Now, I think that's true. And I think the teacher in Ecclesiastes knows that's true. But what he, what he does is he says, this human desire to be the creator and to be God and to know it all and to do it all, the, the tool that God uses to unpick that and to stop us doing that and to bring us down to size and to, to operate on our hearts is our own death. So if you are a would-be God, if you are a creature who wants to be the creator, God is going to operate on you with death. God's going to use death. You know, my children are amazed that surgeons now use lasers, don't they? They don't use a knife to cut into people. They have a laser in their hand. D death is that laser placed on the project of human people. Now, if you, if you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 and look at it again the word death is not used is it we, we looked at this beautiful poetry together death is not used the word's not there but in lyrical tilt there's a kind of tidal ebb and flow this is a rhythmical poem verses 1 to 11 of chapter 1 it, it, it is an ode to death's all-pervasive presence isn't it a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever and what the teacher is doing is using creation to nail the paradox of life in this world. Okay, so remember what we saw? He's using images of permanent repetition and constant change. In a world of permanent rep repetition, we end up doing the same old thing seven days a week, again and again. And we long for something to interrupt the repetition. A new job, a new relationship, a new house, a whole new chapter. But then the teacher says, then we die. Then we die. And at the other end of the spectrum, in a world of constant change, we long for something to give us permanence. So we're at the gym. We buy a health plan. We buy an insurance policy. We get a facelift. We do whatever, whatever we do to try and keep ourselves staying young. Um, we die. Um, some, of you, some of you will remember the old Rocky films. Remember Sylvester Stallone? I've got boys who are just at the age of um, loving the Rocky films. They're just old enough to watch it. And I'm having a trip of nostalgia watching Rocky with them. And my, I have a 13-year-old son, a 10-year-old son. And we watched Rocky Four the other night for the second time. And in Rocky Four, an aging boxer fights a younger boxer and is killed in the ring. And so Rocky goes out to avenge his friend by fighting the, the giant Russian uh, boxer and, and kills him. Anyway... It doesn't kill him, fights him and wins. We were watching this with my daughter and my daughter was just horrified. She said, she said, why, why is that older boxer fighting the younger guy? Why, why is he doing, he doesn't have to do that. Why is he putting himself through that? And my 10 year old son, I kid you not, my 10 year old son said, sitting watching, he didn't, without missing a beat, he didn't look at anyone, he's looking straight ahead at the TV. My 10 year old son said, because he's like dad having a midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> So there you go. I was just stunned that he picked up that I am having a midlife crisis. He, he, he's watching a man in his mid-40s doing everything he can to hold on to permanence, to, 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 to make life permanent. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, look, midlife crisis men, bored housewives who are sick of the repetition of 
same packed lunch, washing machine going round and round, the same routine, mums and dads, getting your kids here, there and everywhere, the same job nine to five. You're always unsettled with it, thinking there should be more to life than this. Why, why am I trapped in this kind of cycle? How do I get hold of things that will keep me here forever? The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, look at the world, it's spinning round and round, water, wind, air, it's never fixed in one place. The earth is spinning and you will come and go like all those things. And if those things don't stay fixed forever, why do you think you're going to stay fixed forever? The, the very created order shows us that we will not live forever. Only the earth stays spinning and we, we spin off it and leave. We shuffle off this mortal coil, don't we? We're, we're, we're gone. And that reality is meant to operate on my heart. If one day I will be dead, what am I striving for? What am I living for? Am I rushing and rushing and rushing and not taking the good gifts of God and enjoying them instead? Now, that's the second half of all of this. That's life. Um, that's life that we'll come to next week. I want you just to go to the end of the book and see this uh, idea. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. In chapter 1, in chapter one, the teacher uses creation to critique us as creatures, okay? He uses the imagery of uh, the wind, the streams, um, the sea, all of these things, the earth spinning, the sun rising. He, he, he looks at the created world and says, that should put us in our place. And that's, that, that's what opens the book in Ecclesiastes chapter one. He comes to death again in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So you've got this beautiful set of poetry that opens and closes the book. Both of them are about death, without actually really using the word death. Both of them are poetic, and both of them use the created world to critique us as creatures. So have a look, um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1. I'm just going to read, um, I'm just going to read these verses uh, for us. Where have I got it here? Yeah, so Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where's my next slide? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, let's, let, as I read, just enjoy, enjoy the poetry of this. And, and as I read it, I think you'll see why we have that house, the first image, that house on the edge of a beautiful lock. Um, I think that's the image I have in my mind as we read, we read this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. 
So you see how the word death isn't used, and yet it, it's another ode, isn't it, to the all-pervasive presence of death. And, and what, you, what, what we should notice when you look at it again is notice how it returns to the imagery of creation again. Okay, verse 2, you've got the imagery of the sun and the light, the moon and the stars, all echoing the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. But now the language here is of these things going dark. See it in verse 2. And that is the opposite of creation. It's the unmaking of creation. Instead of darkness coming to light in Genesis 1, here we have all the things that give light going dark. The good and the right order of things is reversed. Just as God made every person, so at the end, in old age and death, every person becomes unmade. Quite striking, isn't it? Look at the imagery again, the intensity of the picture, all the light givers, notice, sun and moon and stars go dark, and the rain does not give way to daylight, only to threatening clouds. De Derek Kidner, I'm going to show you just a quote in just a second from him, but here's just just come back a bit a second, yeah. He, here, here, here's, here's another thing by Derek Kidner. He says, This is a scene, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is a scene to bring home to us the general desolations of old age. Isn't that, isn't that a, a haunting, simple, true phrase? The general desolations of old age. Not only may the lights of the faculties and the senses begin to fade, but so too the warm glow of old friends, familiar customs and long-held hopes. Age steals each of these away. And then put the cord up, uh, please, Jerry, for me. Here's, here's the next part of that. All of this will come at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years and the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. It is hard to adjust to the closing of that long chapter to know that now in the final stretch, there will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again and time will no longer heal, but kill. Very powerful, isn't it? very powerful. We are, I think we all recognize exactly what that is like, people entering this kind of stage. What you get in the next, the next bit, you get that, that, all of that I think is there in verse two, but then verse three, the imagery changes from meteorology to a domestic scene, doesn't it? We turn from the natural world sliding into darkness to the fall of a great house into tragic disrepair. And what happens in the rest of those verses that I read is that the teacher uses the way in which a once magnificent building becomes dilapidated and ruined to depict what it is like to find your body failing with old age. So the, the, the one that comes to mind for me is Westburn House here in Westburn Park, just down the road from where we are. Every time I'm in there, I, in, in the light of Ecclesiastes, I try and use it as... Um, well, it's, it's preaching a sermon, isn't it? Ecclesiastes teaches me to, to look at the created world preaching to us. And although that the Westburn House isn't a natural part of creation, it is part of the created order of what mankind has built. And that derelict house preaches a sermon to everybody who walks past it that so too one day will you be. Um, our family trips to the park are a great delight. Our children love being in the park. I mean, it's a barrel of laughs from start to finish. Um, all of these verses here from 3 down to 12 or 13, um, they're full of metaphors and allusions, aren't they? It's a really powerful collection. So 
scholars debate what all these images mean, the keepers of the house, the strong men bent. I think they're using imagery to do with the house to describe parts of the human body. So the keepers of the house, I think that now tremble are your hands, once strong and capable of defending you and providing for others, now they tremble and shake. Um, strong men are bent. What, if you go to the gym, men in the gym are nearly always focusing on arms. That's what men work on in the gym, isn't it? Because it's the place of strength. It's, it's the way arms are used in the Bible, uh, that, that the arm of the Lord uh, is a place of where his strength comes from. One day, arms will grow limp and begin to tremble. Strong men now stooping are legs, I think. That's, that's what that image refers to, that hold people up. Now they're stooping, no, no longer even able to bear your own weight. Grinders are teeth, windows are eyes, doors are ears. And eventually they each fail, don't they? No longer able to chew sufficiently or to see completely or hear perfectly. Uh, verse five, old age brings with it light sleep, early waking, a fear of heights, fear of crashing to the ground, of unknown, of venturing outdoors. People become fearful, timid. Um, you know, with, with, uh, after church on Sunday, um, we, we, we come out of the front of Queen Street Church and we're standing outside and there's a sort of raised bit of shrubbery and all the children, the Sunday school children, run round this thing now. And there hasn't been a single week goes by that one of them hasn't fallen over and there's tears. And within minutes, it's over. So mum and dad comes over, you know, there's a wipe comes out, the, the knee is wiped clean and off they go running again. And yet, if, if one of our elderly people was to fall, um, they may not come back to church the following week, even if they're okay, because confidence will take a knock. These children don't even remember they've fallen. They're, they're off doing it again. But a trip and a fall when you are old can spell disaster, can't it? Hair turns snow white, the almond tree blossoming. And the agile athlete who used to hop and skip and jump like a grasshopper now slowed to an undignified Zimmer frame shuffle. And there's just not much appetite left or anything as their desire fails. The grasshopper drags itself along. The failing body, failing desire, and there's grandpa back in the corner after lunch, snoozing again, just like he was snoozing before. Um, now, what I think is happening here in this part of the, the book at the end, it's different from the first Ecclesiastes chapter one, the way that death is operating on our, on, on our hearts there is slightly different in that chapter one is it, it's operating like a clean, sharp cut, isn't it? That you will die. There is no lasting gain. The earth spins and you will be gone. It's kind of neatly surgical. But in chapter 12, I think it's a little bit, it, it, it's, 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 it's gloomier and more poetic in its gloominess. Because he, here's what I think it's doing. There's a famous quote by a, a man called William Hazlitt. I'm going to tell you about him next week. And Hazlitt, I don't think he was talking about Ecclesiastes 12, but he nails this exactly in this phrase. He says, we do not die wholly at our deaths. We do not die wholly at our deaths. In other words, tragically, death comes incrementally to, to us, doesn't it? Now, 
it's not true to say that not everybody dies wholly at our deaths. A, teen a teenager who drops dead unexpectedly dies uh, instantaneously, unexpectedly. But to, to enter old age is to die slowly, isn't it? It's, it's not a, a quick death, it's a, a, a slow undoing. And that, that's exactly what the teacher is getting at here, is saying that death, death is like that, and death can come to us like that. And so because death is that awful, death can be experienced like that. The whole point of this book is to say, before you get there, how are you going to live? Okay, remember the, the, the opening of Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth. I think I said right back at the beginning, if I didn't, I'm going to say it in a couple of weeks time that parts of the Bible, I think, are gender specific and even age specific. So Proverbs, I think, is a book written specifically to boys. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. I think Song of Songs is a book written specifically to women. Daughter, daughters of Jerusalem, do not awaken love. Uh, before the right time. It doesn't mean that only women or men should read the respective books. There's immense benefit in us reading all of it and listening to what men are being told and what women are being told. So too, I think Ecclesiastes is primarily a book, a book for the young. And it, it, it's, tr it's trying to operate on, operate on the young person's heart to say death is real and death is coming. Now, and this is where I need to try and work hard at this next, next week for you. It's not a morbid message about you're young, but don't forget one day you're going to die. Because that doesn't really work, does it? Um, the message of Ecclesiastes is not that. It's not you're young, but look, death is coming. Because I, I say that to my boys. They watch my midlife crisis. And I know that what they think is it will never happen to them. That, that's, what it, that's, that's what it's like, isn't it? Here, here's, here's the other William... William Hazlitt quote is that he says, to be young is to feel immortal. And that is, I just think that's so true. My boy and my girls, I see it in my boys because they're like me and they're testing their strength and their agility and all of these things specifically. Um, they, they just feel immortal. Now they don't, they don't get out of bed in the morning and say, I feel immortal. What Hazlitt means, it's just what to be young feels like. You don't, you can't, you don't verbalize it. You just feel immortal. Death, death happens to other people, not you. Um, and I guess the midlife crisis is the realization, no, death is coming to me. That's all it is, isn't it? It's the slow dawning of the thing that I thought happens to everybody else is beginning to happen to me. And you're trying to claw uh, youth back a little bit. Um, so the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to say, because that's what it's like to be young, to feel immortal, how am I going to get through to young people? The whole book is written to try and let death operate on the heart before death comes. Not so that the young person just says death is coming, but so that they learn to live well. That's the point. And that's what I'm going to try and labor next week, that the message of Ecclesiastes is not you're young, but don't forget you're going to die. It's you're young. And because you will die and because death may come incrementally and is an awful experience of when it comes incrementally, because that is the case, live full pelt. While you're alive, live. And I think we've really missed that hugely often in the Bible, that we think, 
we think the sum total of the Bible's message is because you're going to die, get ready for heaven, not hell. And it's the next life that counts, not, the, not this life. That's a kind of extreme version. Um, or because you're going to die, simply prepare for death. Are you ready to meet your maker? All of those things are totally true, aren't they? Of course, they're there in parts of the Bible explicitly. But the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Song of Songs, sex, money, work, career, family, children, the wisdom literature is there to say, because death is coming, do all of those things with as much godly zeal and abandon as you possibly can. While you are young, pour yourself into them with every ounce you can. The wisdom literature is amazingly life-affirming, world-affirming in the right sense that the world is broken, awful, cursed, dark, and yet it remains good because God made it good. There is so, so much to do and enjoy and, and love. And Christian people should be, of all people, the most world-affirming people. And I, I mean that in the, the sense of the good gifts that God has given. We should be the people who don't idolize the gifts and elevate them beyond what they're meant to be, but the people who receive them with gratitude and the people who enjoy them the most and, and, and love them the most. So that, that's the first point. Death is a surgeon and it's, it's, it's like, like a knife, uh, a laser knife and a slow knife, I don't know what the, the phrase is, to, to, to get us to see that we need to live a certain way because this is coming and to wake us up out of our creaturely attempt to be divine and to be the creator. So that's the first one. Um, I don't think I had another slide on that, no. So the second one, death is a preacher. Here's another, here's another angle in Ecclesiastes. Not just that death uh, works on us internally, um, simply by the brute fact of its existence. I think, secondly, Ecclesiastes has another angle on death that says that death is a preacher. Uh, death is an evangelist. Death, death is something that speaks a particular message to us. It's very like the message in 1 and 12, but in a way it becomes a bit more explicit here. And the, the place to see this is chapter 7. Uh, let me just read a couple of verses from Ecclesiastes 7 uh, for us. So chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. You see that implication? That's the, that's the point of the comparison, isn't it? A, a good reputation is better than the best Chanel number five you've got on your dresser. It, it, it matters more to have a good name, good character. Okay, I think we get that, don't we? It makes sense. And the day of death better than the day of birth. And that's the bit. Remember, I, I think I use this as from the end of the book that talks about the words of the teacher being like sharp sticks, like like goads, a pointed stick. How on earth? That's painful, isn't it? The day of death, better than the day of birth. I think it's the next verses that explain that, that explain what it means. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. 
It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Here's what I mean by death being an evangelist, death, death preaching to us. It all comes from uh, that striking phrase in verse one, the day of death being better than the day of birth. You, you've got to get inside it, the shock of that, I think, to, to understand it. If several of you I know on the on the Zoom call this evening are grandparents, parents, you've been in maternity wards. And if everything has gone well, a maternity ward is one of the happiest places on earth, isn't it? It's just amazing balloons and teddies and people crying and um, the, the, the joy and the happiness of what has happened arriving uh, into somebody's somebody's home, all that life, all that hope, all that potential, all that beauty, the miracle of life. And along comes the Bible saying the day of death is better than the day of birth. So some commentators say, look, you know, they think all that potential of life stretching ahead. How can the day of death ever be, be the day of death ever be better than the day of birth? Maybe they say that maybe the clue is that word potential. Birth is all about potential, but death, death for the believer is all about fulfillment. So a Christian parent might have hopes and dreams for their, their child, but at death, only at death, do all those hopes and dreams become realized and become fulfilled and perfect. Maybe that's what it means that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, I think all of that's true, of course, isn't it? Um, for Christian people, death is a fulfillment of life and so on. But I don't think that's what the writer means. And like I said, for verse two onwards, I think that's, I think that begins to become clear. Verse two onwards, if you read verse one in the light of verse two, I think the teacher is saying that the day of your death is a better teacher than the day of your birth. The day of death is a better teacher, a better preacher. So when a newborn baby arrives, think about it, okay? all the joy and all the happiness but there's virtually nothing you can say about them you you know you look at them oh she's got her mum's nose and her dad's eyes and all the rest of it she's so like you uh, he's so like her but that's pretty much all you can say about a new baby isn't it as you begin to get to know them it takes a, a while to get to know them but now fast forward to that baby's death 86 years later what can we say about her then at that point? She was kind. She was generous. What, what depth there was to her as a person. She was so like Jesus. Or she loved her garden. She loved her knitting. She loved her bingo. She loved fill in the blanks you've heard it haven't you you've been to funerals like that where there just really isn't much actually to say nothing nothing bad to be said and not much of substance to be said she didn't really love anything or anyone apart from herself she lived for herself alone imagine that being said at a funeral 
See that the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because death is better than life. It is not better than life, but because a coffin is a better preacher than a cot. That's the point, isn't it? That's what he's getting at. A coffin preaches better sermons than a cot. A cot can't really say very much other than I'm here. But a coffin, think of all that is packed into a coffin as a person lies at the front of a church or the crematorium. All those years of living and living and loving or not loving and speaking or not speaking. Coffins preach, don't they? Full of, full of significance, full of meaning. When life ends or is about to end, everything, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, all of them now seem so empty and pointless. Remember 9-11, um, the memorials, apparently there are memorials somewhere. Some of you may have seen it um, around Ground Zero where they've put up, they've put up all the final messages that people on the planes managed to get on their mobile phones out to loved ones that were saved on text messages or answer machines. And some of them are just harrowing but the, the point is in those moments everything comes into focus people aren't phoning and ringing and saying um you know i don't know the kind of, the kind of messages that we the kind of things that we say to our loved ones all the time that are completely trivial just part of ordinary life we don't you don't leave a message like that at that point do you 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 crystallize everything that matters because life is about to end here is your chance to to say what is most important. And that's what the teacher is saying. He's grabbing us here by the shoulders, pointing us forward, saying, look, don't, don't be a fool trying to drown life's agonies in escapism and pretending all these things don't exist. Look, don't try and, don't try and laugh away the sadness of life. Don't just try and sing the sadness away because there is real wisdom in people who have seen death and learned from death and who have lived life in a certain way that they're able to teach us and to instruct us. This teacher is saying, look forward to the day of death and ask yourself, what kind of person will I be? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of pleasure. That's the new international rendering of this. What the teacher's done is that he's been to he's been to a funeral and he's watched watched not just the minister at the front and the coffin at the front, but he's watched the mourners. And the teacher has come to realise there are two types of people at every funeral that you go to. You, you've got you've got the fool. See see the fool in verse four, and the fool goes to the funeral a because he's really quite glad to get out of work. He didn't really know the person that well, but they get work, let him go. He got an hour, an hour and a half out of work. And he gets to the funeral and he just zones out for 20 minutes, half an hour, pays his respects, but he's thinking the football's on tonight. And I'll get to the pub with my mates and I'll get to go and do this and that and all the rest of it. And this is grim. This is awful um, in here. Don't like what they've done to the creme. Um, Glad it's not me at the front having to conduct it. Just it just washes over him as he tries to get back on with life as normally as possible. But the teacher has seen a different type of person, the wise person, verse four, who who comes in and just sits a while 
and looks at the coffin and listens to what's being said. And the wise man sits in the creme and he stares at the coffin and he realizes one day it will be my turn. And here's the key thing, when it's me, what will they be saying about me? He loved his bowling, he loved his party, he loved his holidays. And that's it. Over, gone. No, you see, it's, it's, it's not where wisdom is found by pretending death isn't real, by pretending it won't happen to me one day. And what difference would it make to the way that I live to think that when it's me, what account of my life will be given? Now, so much of the rest of the Bible wants us to think about what account will we give to God individually for life. That's massively important, isn't it? Massively important. Jesus telling the parable of the rich man building down his barns and uh, building his barns. To, you know, I'm going to tear them down and build bigger ones. And the whole point of it is God saying, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. It's a kind of individual reckoning before God. But the, 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 the teacher in Ecclesiastes doesn't deny any of that. He's just taking a different angle and saying, because that's coming, what, what way do I, what type of person do I want to be in the meantime? What kind of legacy am I going to, to, to leave? And this is how the two things come together. You see the message, the preacher of death, the preacher of death saying, this is the end of all mankind, verse two, and the living will lay it to heart. Count that the, 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 the sermon of death comes together with this, the surgery of death to just try and make us think instead of trying to build gain for myself and leave a legacy for, for me, what can I do for others? That's the whole direction of the book of Ecclesiastes, turning out from ourselves and leaving the kind of things that do make a difference and do last forever are not buildings and projects and reputation and career and it's nearly always people it's legacy of people isn't it ecclesiastes chapter four that's why you get the famous words about a cord of three strands is not quickly broken it comes in the context of a couple of verses saying that two are better than one and the whole idea is that three are better than two and carry it on four are probably better than three contrast all of that with the wise with, with the the wealthy man who's made it to the top of the pile, sitting all alone in the restaurant, nobody with him at the table. He's got more money could, than, he, than he knows what to do with, but he's lonely and alone because he's chased gain. He, he's got a restless striving after the wind and death hasn't operated on his heart. He hasn't met his own death in advance, looked it in the eye and said, okay, I know I'm going to meet you one day. And before I do, here's what I'm going to do with my life. Here's how I'm going to live it. Now, we're going we're gonna to come next week to even more. I, I, you probably do think this is bleak, and I understand that. I'm going to try and come to much more next week of the, uh, the positives about this. But I, I, do, I do just want to labor this just a little bit because I think this is really important. Verse 2. This is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. There are some very, very rich, very rich reflections on thinking about death and the difference that it makes to living. You don't, you don't just have to 
think about your own future death to be taught. Some, some people in God's, well, in God's, and, and pe people have come to say this themselves, themselves in, in God's kind providence, some people have experienced, uh, have, have come up close and personal with death in a way that can teach others too. So I'm going to give you two examples here, but just one that I saw today in, in my own family. My, my brother, some of you will know my brother's a professor in America. And several years ago, he and his wife lost uh, a little girl stillborn. Uh, they were living in Cambridge at the time. They've got, they had one, uh, an, older, an older boy and longing for this child to, to be born. And she was stillborn. And they're now in America. And Layla, their, their daughter, uh, my niece, is buried in Cambridge. And just today, my, my sister-in-law, Jackie, put on Instagram a photo of friends in Cambridge visiting Layla's grave in Cambridge and they've got a beautiful headstone and w w what meant the world to my sister-in-law was that these friends took their children so a family went went to the graveyard to look after Layla's headstone because my brother and his family are in America and Jackie put on Instagram she had the photo of them at Layla's grave and she put verse 2 it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. This is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. And there's different things going on there. There's, there's the, you know, the, uh, taking your children, taking a family to go and visit the grave of a friend. It communicates to my brother and his wife that Layla mattered and that she was a person who was valuable, not just to them, but to others and that her life, her, her life that they didn't ever get to enjoy, but the life that grew in nine months mattered and was meaningful and it matters to others. So there's a, there's a kind of beauty in that, but also Jackie's just pointing out, what are, this, what, is, what, is, what are these parents doing? I mean, it's not a day out, is it, to take your children to a graveyard? Um, and yet in, in no doubt an age appropriate way, here are parents with their children saying, we're in a graveyard, children, and I don't know what it looks like to do it, but do you know what I mean? They, they, are, they are being wise and laying this to the heart of children, that here is another precious child who we didn't get to meet and didn't get to be with, but one day we will. And a, a graveyard can preach sermons, can't it? Death can teach these young children. We, we have visited Layla's grave and our children remember it we visited it late at night coming back from a holiday in portugal um stopped off it was the only chance we had to do it and and our children remember it they're not traumatized by it i don't think um they remember what it means to be there to speak about leila um all all of all what i'm saying here is that other people's experience of death can teach us hugely two two examples of this if you put up the slide uh, jerry Trinity, Trinity people, I think have heard me talk about this book um, so much over the years. Here's another book uh, to get if you are um, struggling with death, death of a loved one, um, dealing with sorrow and loss. Uh, this is a man called Gerald Sitzer. He's a professor in America, Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. And he has written, I think, the most profound uh, study of loss that I've ever I've ever read I guess I haven't read too many things in this area but um, 
this book, A Grace Disguised, okay, it tells the story of how um, in the autumn of 1991 in rural Idaho, uh, this man, Gerald Sitzer, was driving with his wife, his four children and his mother when their car was struck by a drunk driver. And in a moment, he lost his wife, his mother and his four-year-old daughter. And that book on your screen uh, is what he wrote uh, in the aftermath. It's a beautiful, profoundly moving book, A Grace Disguised. His reflections portray an unspeakable agony, the kind of agony you can't really imagine entering. He portrays it from the inside, um, powerfully describing how he and his surviving children began to piece, uh, piece their lives back together again. Now, I first came across that book in 1995. I was a student, um, undergraduate student, and I read the first edition of that book four years after the accident. And then eight years later, he brought out the version that's on the screen, which is um, the second edition. There, there may be more editions now, I don't know, an expanded edition. Eight years after he wrote the first edition of the book, he had the opportunity to comment on how far he and his children had come in that time since the accident and since he wrote the book. Okay, now listen to this. In the preface to the second edition, so the book that's on the screen there, in the preface of the second edition, he reveals, here's what he says, my rawness and my utter bewilderment have given way to contentment and deep gratitude. My story has turned out to be redemptive, not only for me and my children, but for many other people as well. And then he says this, now friends, listen to this. As strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. Okay, now, can, can you take that in? As strange as it might sound, I wish that every man could experience what I have, though without the acute suffering. Now, I think that he was ever able, ever able to give a book that title, A Grace Disguised. The subtitle is How the Soul Grows Through Loss. I think that he was ever able to even describe his trauma as a grace disguised is remarkable, isn't it? But in that second edition, here he is standing in a place where he has received from death the kind of gifts that he wishes others could share. Now, that is surely a profound surprise, isn't it? Isn't that Brian Brock's thing right at the start? We need to be alienated from what we think we know. In, in the first edition, he describes the night of the accident. He, he, he gets back to somewhere, some physical house, and all the flashing lights and helicopters and ambulances all subsiding, and he, he sinks into an object, and he says, I knew then that I was sinking into a darkness from which I might never emerge the night of the accident. And then all those years later, to say, I, I wish every man could experience what I have. You, you have to read it. You have to read the book to see what the gifts are that death gives, how, how he ends up in that position. He, he, so some of you have had this much more than I have yet in my young life. Some of you know this, that pe people who have experienced catastrophic loss often say, don't they, that they survived by seeing that somehow they had to take the loss into themselves. And by taking such a huge loss into themselves, it, it stretches their whole being almost to breaking point. Their heart almost physically enlarges. And 
as they stretch like that, they discover that there is room in their heart and mind for God and for life and others that wasn't there before. Gerald Sitzer even writes of the sickness of the soul that can only be healed through suffering. The sickness of the soul that can only be healed through suffering. So I think all of this is a, is a kind of profound development of what Ecclesiastes is saying. It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. That, that there are things about life and things about love and joy that we can only learn because of death. And that is very, very uh, shocking, I think, isn't it? It's countercultural. It's the opposite of what we think. The best place where we find life's gifts none of it means that the experience of learning those things is a pleasant experience or joyful at the time that we're learning them um there's another another um another man whose books i, I i've enjoyed and benefited a christian philosopher called nicholas walterstorff and uh, here he is on the screen um not not everything that walterstorff writes is as uh as reliable as I found Daryl Sitzer's work, you have to handle some of Walter Stoff's stuff with quite a bit of care. Um, Walter Stoff has written a book called Lament for a Son uh, that, that tells the story of the death of his 25-year-old son in a climbing accident. And that, that book, Lament for a Son, is a different type of book. A Grace Disguised is a sort of coherent, arg you know, an argument logic. This led to this. Here's how I developed and so on. Lament for a Son is just very short laments really like the title says um, almost like little psalms that he's written and that book contains some of the most moving evocations of grief that i've ever read it is profound you, you cannot read that book if you're a parent without weeping um and again i noticed in a later edition of walterstorff's book that at the the, the preface of the book he comments on a, another father's strange habit okay think about this here's a book that he he wrote called Lament for a Son, dealing with his own grief at losing his son. And he comments on a fa another father's strange habit of giving that book to each of his own children. You know, so I thought, imagine I give Lament for a Son to my two sons. Okay, they're too young for it probably. But imagine on their 18th birthday, I gave each of them a copy of that. And Walterstorff was kind of like, why, this is weird. Why on earth would you do this? And then he, that, then he said, he realized that the father, did, maybe the father told him, I can't remember, he does it because the father realized that that book, Lament for a Son, is a love letter. And that's why it's so powerful and so painful. Lament expresses love, doesn't it? That's why lament is there in the Bible. Because we love you, Lord, why, why have you done this? Because I loved him so much or her so much, lament are the words that then come to expression in my heart and mind because of that. Love, lament expresses love. And Walterstorff's book, Gerald Sitzer's book, what they do is they, they show us that somebody else's lament can give voice, here's the thing, not just to our own grief, but also give voice to our loves. I think books like Sitzer's and, and Walterstorff's can teach us the language of our hearts that not all of us actually know. Um, 
you know, I don't mean to be gender stereotypical, but particularly men. Uh, it's interesting these two books written by men. Not not all of us are just in touch with the 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 language of love that actually is there deep within us, and that we don't often easily verbalize. But it takes loss to make us see and understand the kind of things and people that we love. So I think Ecclesiastes. I think what Ecclesiastes does is that it says that death, death puts on a preacher's gown to teach us that life is finite and we must use it well. It's as if, imagine going to church on Sunday, you've got a grand pulpit or a, a plexiglass lectern standing there. And whatever you've got, you go to church on Sunday, imagine it's death standing behind your lectern on Sunday. Death is leaning down from that lectern to impress on us that the people we love are more precious than we realize. And we must love them well. In more than that, it's teaching us that we, we love them more deeply than we even realize. And that's why we must love them well. Death is teaching us that life is more precious than we've grasped and we must live it well. So th that's what I think is going on here in terms of death being a teacher and a preacher. It's, it, it's saying to us that the life that we have and the people that we have are the gifts that God has given us to enjoy, maybe more than we're doing. Maybe we're simply taking them for granted and not noticing the many, many good things around us. And death is there to say, stop and listen. Every funeral, every funeral you go to is an invitation. Come in. Imagine death at the door as an usher. Come in, sit here, listen for a while and reflect on your life and what life is like because of the end that will come to all mankind. So I think I'm going to stop there tonight. Actually, I think it's more than enough on uh, death for one evening. I'm going to come back next week to death as an artist and um, explain a little bit more about that. I'm going to use, as we talk about death next week, I'm going to use that as the way into the ways in which um, death is meant to help us live because Ecclesiastes is full, full of life-affirming, God's good gifts, enjoying material. Um, remember, remember, I said right at the start about Tremper Longman that he just couldn't, Tremper Longman thinks these are all contradictory, all this stuff about death and all the good gifts and so on. And I, I want to try and show you next week how you, how you put it all together. Um, the, 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 the people who know that I'm not, I'm not here forever and I'm not meant to live forever. And the people who know that they are dying can be some of the most alive joyful life-affirming people you will ever meet that's that's the whole point of ecclesiastes um and you, you, we see that don't we you think about it the way that the world lives the obsession with not getting old staying young um the way that in all of that older people are marginalized actually and counted as old age is something to be shunned and feared and um yeah Anyway, I'm starting to waffle. That's always a time to stop when you start to waffle. Stop. Um, so let me pray for us and then I'll hand back to you, Jerry, if there's anything you want to say at the end. Um, but from me, I think we're done. Okay, should we pray? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for 
your living word that we have open in front of us. And like the teacher says here, we want to lay these things to heart. Such a lovely phrase that you've given to us. Um, we rush through life so often with so many things. We take them in with our eyes and ears, but we don't stop to lay them to heart. And as strange and difficult as it might be, I want to pray that you would help each of us this evening to lay our own deaths to our own hearts. And you know each person watching and listening, you know the stories of our lives, the tragedies that have unfolded or that are unfolding even in our homes this very evening. And you know our regrets and our longings, our unanswered questions. And so we want to give one another to you. We pray that this material that we're looking at would in your kindness and your merciful care of us become life-giving. As you tell us to do so clearly uh, in this book, we want to number our days aright. Uh, we want to give ourselves to you as creatures, not seeking to have more than you have ever promised to give us, not exalting ourselves beyond our own capacities or status. status. Make us humble people, uh, people full of love and care for others because we have seen the true measure of ourselves and our own mortality in the light of your strong, perfect, life-giving eternity. And so as we give ourselves to you, we ask you to, to keep us, loving Father, until next week. And for each person here, I pray they would know your presence day by day, uh, the living, life-giving comfort of your spirit, uh, the truth of your word, the comfort of your people, uh, these difficult days of ongoing separation from each other in person for each of our churches, give those who lead them courage and clarity, love of you and your word. Uh, give your shepherds food to give to your people, we pray. And so keep us and hold us, we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.